Nerve to muscle, nerve to muscle. Can you hear me, muscle? Copy, nerve. This is muscle. Are we ready to go yet? Over. Sorry, muscle. Not sure what the holdup is. We heard there's a kink somewhere in the works, trying to figure out where the problem is. Give us a minute, but we think the problem is at the junction. The what? The neuromuscular junction. You know, where we plug in our axons, over. Oh, gotcha. Okay, standing by nerve. Muscle out. Welcome to Physiology by Physio, an Inside the Boards podcast. This show brings together some of the best boards-relevant content for physiology and pathophysiology from three innovative platforms, Physio, Inside the Boards, and Med School Phys. This episode is going to be all about the important events that take place at the neuromuscular junction, where the alpha motor neuron meets the muscle fiber. The neuromuscular junction is the site of communication that allows us to have deliberate and conscious control, as well as reflexive and unconscious control over our skeletal muscles. In this episode, we will cover all the important bits that you need to know about neurotransmission via the neuromuscular junction, including the key events that cause discharge of a nerve, all the way up to calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which will ultimately facilitate skeletal muscle contraction. Additionally, we'll cover the pathophysiology of various diseases that afflict the neuromuscular junction. So are you feeling ready for it? Okay, so the neuromuscular junction can be intimidating to some students, but you really only need to know a few little details in order to answer any of the questions that you'll come across on step one. So let's start off with structure. First off, we have an axonal bouton, or the distal end of an alpha motor neuron, which closely interfaces with a muscle fiber that it's innervating. Between the axonal bouton, or the nervous side, and the sarcolemma of the muscle fiber, or the muscular side of the neuromuscular junction, we have this synaptic cleft between the two. The axonal bouton is packed full of vesicles with acetylcholine in them, and when the alpha motor neuron fires, the action potential travels down the axon and eventually reaches the axonal bouton. Once that action potential reaches the axonal bouton, it'll cause an influx of a certain ion, which is calcium. So when calcium rushes into the axonal bouton on the nervous side of the neuromuscular junction, it'll trigger a cascade of events that eventually allows acetylcholine vesicles to travel to the end of the axonal bouton, fuse with that membrane there, and then release acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft. Okay, and with that background out of the way, here we'll have our first switch to physio content with a quick practice question. Okay, before we move any further, let's do a question. A new experimental drug is known to inhibit voltage-sensitive calcium channels in the alpha motor neuron. How will this drug likely alter skeletal muscle activity? Remember, when this calcium channel opens, calcium enters the cell and induces acetylcholine release. When acetylcholine enters the synaptic cleft, it binds to acetylcholine receptors in the muscle. This is ultimately responsible for causing muscle contraction. Because this new experimental drug blocks these calcium channels, we can deduce that less acetylcholine will be released, 
and the skeletal muscle will not be stimulated as much. So how will this drug likely alter skeletal muscle activity? It will decrease skeletal muscle activity. So that was a great question from Physio showing how a calcium channel blocker at the axonal bouton could prevent excitation of a skeletal muscle. Now let's get back on track. So let's say that the calcium influx happens just fine. Where else could this process of neurotransmission go wrong? Well, before acetylcholine vesicles can fuse with the membrane of the axonal bouton, they have to be towed along there by certain proteins known as snare proteins. Now, you may be thinking, where have I heard that term snare proteins before? Well, does botulism ring a bell? So what does botulism toxin do to these snare proteins, like synaptophysin? Botulism toxin is a protease that cleaves snare proteins to prevent acetylcholine from reaching the end of the axonal bouton. Without acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft, the muscle can't contract, right? Because the sarcolemma won't depolarize, and then you won't have calcium released inside of the muscle to make the muscle contract. Hence, we say that botulism toxin induces paralysis. And for the boards, what pattern does this paralysis follow? Well, it's a descending paralysis, starting from the head and neck and then descending towards the feet. Awesome. So to summarize what we've done thus far, we've covered how the action potential comes down the alpha motor neuron, then stimulates calcium release, which triggers a cascade of events that gets snare proteins to move the acetylcholine vesicles to the surface, and then acetylcholine is dumped into the synaptic cleft. Also, we've seen how a hypothetical calcium channel blocker and botulism toxin can negatively affect this process. So those are the major things that you need to remember about the nervous side of the neuromuscular junction. On the muscular side of the neuromuscular junction, uh, probably the main thing that you need to remember is the kind of receptor that the acetylcholine will end up binding to. Do you remember what that receptor is? It's the nicotinic receptor, um, and they can try and trip you up by putting down both nicotinic and muscarinic as answer choices, but in the case of skeletal muscle, it is the nicotinic receptor that is uh, stimulated by acetylcholine. Okay, now let's go on to another great practice question from our friends at Physio. Okay, let's do another question. A 67-year-old female is being intubated for a hip replacement surgery, the anesthesiologist suddenly notices that she develops hyperkalemia. What drug was likely used to assist with the intubation that resulted in the hyperkalemia? Okay, hyperkalemia during surgery should make you think of the drug succinylcholine. Succinylcholine is a drug used to induce temporary paralysis. This is especially helpful when intubating or mechanically ventilating a patient. Succinylcholine works by binding to and activating the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. The muscle becomes completely depolarized for a sustained period of time and ultimately prevents additional stimulation. Because succinylcholine activates the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, it causes sodium to enter the cell and potassium to exit the cell. The sustained efflux of potassium is responsible for the hyperkalemia and is an important side effect to be aware of when using succinylcholine. 
Okay, so now we have acetylcholine bound to its receptor, and acetylcholine binding basically causes depolarization of the sarcolemma, or the plasma membrane of the muscle cell. And depolarization of the sarcolemma is carried into this uh, system of folds of the, of the plasma membrane called the T-tubule system. So these T-tubules are folding in towards the center of the muscle cell. And on either side of the T-tubule, you have portions of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, um, which is basically the endoplasmic reticulum of the muscle cell. And an important substance is stored in this sarcoplasmic reticulum, if you remember what that is. And that is calcium. So the calcium that's stored here um, needs to be released. And the way that it's released is the action potential that is traveling down this T-tubule will ultimately stimulate a receptor called the dihydropyridine receptor. And that receptor is physically coupled to another receptor, if you remember what that's called. It's called the ryanidine receptor. So the ryanidine receptor is actually a calcium channel um, that helps to release the stored calcium uh, within the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cytoplasm of the muscle cell um, to allow calcium to do its work on troponin C and facilitate muscle contraction. All right, everybody, this is Greg from Inside the Boards, and I'd like to cut in here and give a quick shout out to our sponsor for this episode, which is Physio. If you haven't figured this part out yet, we at Inside the Boards really do love what the guys at Physio are doing for the scene of medical education. Uh, first off, they produce this fantastic library of easy-to-consume videos, which cover everything you need to know about physiology for your classes and for the boards. But then they didn't stop there. They went on to produce two more libraries of rock-solid instruction for biochem and biostats, and their microbiology videos are currently in the works. So they're just super busy, and they're getting it done. But in creating new content, they didn't just like stay in their comfort zone with the old 15-minute long whiteboard style video. No, 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 no. At Physio, they understand that while some topics are best learned by focusing on the underlying process, other topics will just require brute force memorization. So to meet the needs of their learners, the guys at Physio came up with a cool new hybridized learning style that includes both Pathoma-style whiteboard videos integrated together with sketchy-style picture mnemonics. And by seamlessly integrating these two tried-and-true teaching tools, Physio will help you to master med school. Make sure you stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about the exclusive deal that we at ITB got for you, the listener. And now, back to the show. So the next example that uh, we ought to cover is myasthenia gravis. So myasthenia gravis, as most people know, is an autoimmune disease. And it's important to know what is being targeted in this specific autoimmune disease. And the answer to that is the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Okay, and with that brief introduction into myasthenia gravis, I'm going to let the guys at Physio take over explaining the rest of the pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis. But to tee up their explanation, I'm going to prompt you with this question. Why does myasthenia gravis result in increasing muscle weakness throughout the day with repetitive use? 
Okay, in order to get this question right, you need to know what myasthenia gravis is. Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder where antibodies bind and disrupt the acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junction. The dysfunctional acetylcholine receptors results in excessive endocytosis of the receptors. And this means that when the presynaptic neuron releases acetylcholine, there are less receptors available to stimulate. This means initially, the acetylcholine binds some few receptors that are available and results in muscle contraction. However, as more acetylcholine is released into the neuromuscular junction, there aren't any additional acetylcholine receptors available, so the muscle is no longer able to contract, which results in progressive weakening of the muscles with repetitive use. So naturally, the next disease to cover is uh, Lambert-Eaton. And Lambert-Eaton is similar to myasthenia gravis um, in that it's an autoimmune disease, uh, but its autoimmune target is on the other side of the uh, neuromuscular junction. And do you remember what it's targeting? It's targeting that voltage-gated calcium channel on the axonal bouton. Okay, let's do another question. A 66-year-old with a 50-pack-year smoking history presents with generalized muscle weakness. He states that it is worse in the morning but gets better throughout the day. What is the underlying explanation for the muscle weakness? From the question stem, hopefully you notice that the patient has a history of smoking, which should make you think of lung cancer. Because this patient has muscle weakness that gets better throughout the day, so worse in the morning, but gets better throughout the day. We can infer that the patient must have small cell lung cancer resulting in a perineoplastic syndrome called Lambert-Eaton syndrome. Lambert-Eaton syndrome is caused by antibodies that bind to and disrupt the presynaptic calcium channels. When this calcium channel opens, calcium enters the cell and induces acetylcholine release. When acetylcholine enters the synaptic cleft, it can bind to the acetylcholine receptors in the muscle. This is ultimately responsible for causing muscle contraction. Because Lambert-Eaton syndrome blocks these channels, we can deduce that less acetylcholine will be released and the skeletal muscle will not be stimulated as much. This is why these patients have muscle weakness. The muscle weakness gets better with use because over time, the alpha motor neuron is stimulated more and more until enough acetylcholine is able to be released into the synaptic cleft and cause muscle contraction. Notice how Lambert-Eaton and myasthenia gravis are both autoimmune disorders that disrupt neurotransmission. These two disorders can be hard to remember, so I like to use the letter L in Lambert-Eaton to remind me that L comes before M in the alphabet. The letter M helps remind me of myasthenia gravis. So if L comes before M, then Lambert-Eaton must be caused by disruption of the presynaptic cleft, so presynaptic, whereas myasthenia gravis must be caused by disruption of the postsynaptic cleft. So L comes before M, and the presynaptic cleft comes before the postsynaptic cleft. Hopefully this helps. That's how I keep these things straight. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised.
For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your Physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a Physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. And now let's finish out the rest of the episode. And one more uh, pretty high yield example uh, to illustrate the importance of physiology. Um, is malignant hyperthermia. So malignant hyperthermia is a condition that affects some people after they go into surgery and are exposed to inhaled anesthetics. And these people um, have a genetic variant of a certain receptor. Do you remember what that receptor is? It's the ryanidine receptor. And um, their ryanidine receptor Uh, responds to inhaled anesthetic by releasing a ton of calcium, causing muscle rigidity and dangerous hyperthermia. Okay, we've pretty thoroughly covered the important topics in the neuromuscular junction. Let's finish up this episode with a practice question. So a 40-year-old man uh, presents to the emergency department with acute severe right lower quadrant abdominal pain for the past three hours. He's quickly diagnosed with appendicitis and sent for emergency appendectomy. During the surgery, he develops tachycardia, tachypnea, and his temperature spikes to 103 degrees Fahrenheit. What drug should be immediately administered to reverse this patient's condition? A. Oxygen B. Beta blocker C. Dantrolene D. Danazole or E. Some ridiculous answer And the answer is C, dantrolene. So the key uh, to this question is one, being able to recognize uh, malignant hyperthermia. So this patient was sent in for surgery and then they developed a really high temperature during that surgery, uh, also tachycardia and tachypnea. Then once you've recognized that the patient has malignant hyperthermia, you also need to know a drug that we can use to treat it, and that drug is dantrolene. So dantrolene is an antagonist of the ryanidine receptor, so it makes sense that we would be able to use it to reverse uh, malignant hyperthermia because the underlying cause is a defective ryanidine receptor. And guess what? That's it for this episode of Physiology by Physio. So thanks for listening and learning. Now go live it up.